Let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 4. This is a text now we've turned to, uh, transitioned to Romans chapter 4 in our study through the book of Romans. We began this two weeks ago. While you're turning there, um, let me just remind you, uh, we, and I've, I've really dropped the ball on this, but we said we were going to be doing scripture memory throughout the book of Romans, and, um, and we are going to do that, and, uh, but I haven't given you, I think I gave you chapter 1, chapter 2's verses, but I didn't give chapter 3's, so if you're doing that and you're kind of memorizing the key verses from each chapter through this, uh, chapter 3 is going to be verses 23 to 25. Uh, now, you can, you can learn the surrounding verses for context. You can memorize those if you would like. But I think the key verses there are chapter 3, verses 23 to 25 for our memory verses. Now, if you remember, chapter 4, as we looked at this two weeks ago, is an extension of the second half of chapter 3. What Paul began in this section of unfolding the righteousness of God manifested in the gospel, verse 21 of chapter 3, and as he uh, walked through that passage and as he talked about the cross and the righteousness that we get, the justification we get from the cross, he is now in chapter 4 going to use the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, uh, uh, Genesis specifically, as uh, an example of where his teaching comes out of the Bible, where his teaching is scriptural. We made that, that whole point that how necessary that is for uh, preachers and pastors to uh, show you and demonstrate from the Bible where they're getting their points. And you'll remember the point of controversy was in chapter 3, verse 28. Paul's main thesis here and what is the most controversial and has been from, from Paul's day all the way through church history is what he states or summarizes in chapter 3, verse 28. He says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. It's that last phrase was so controversial and problematic in Paul's day and has remained so really up into the present day in which we live. That we can be justified, that we must be justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That was what largely split the church in the 16th century, so in the 1500s in that reformational time period with men like Martin Luther split the church forever over that. And the Roman Catholic Church continued in one direction and the Protestant reformers began moving in this other direction in that key phrase, apart from works. We're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And as we ended last time, we looked at how Martin Luther standing against the the church, at, uh, the Catholic church who was accusing him of being a heretic, saying these teachings that you're teaching, you're, just, you're the only ones coming up with these things. Where are you? You're, you're going against everyone else. And if you think of what a unique position that would have been for the, him to stand before them as the one saying, I'm right and you're all wrong. And he made that famous speech 
in which he said, my conscience is tethered to Scripture. And in doing that, what he said is the precedence of Scripture alone teaches us this. How do I know I'm right and you're wrong? Scripture alone. He said, I'm not going to listen to your popes and councils. They've often contradicted each other. But in Scripture alone, we have the authoritative, inerrant words of God. And so that is our principle. Scripture alone. Can you see how important it is for whoever's going to stand up here on a Sunday morning and preach or teach that they tell you to take out your Bibles, open up to the passage we're going to look at, and you follow along with me. And then when they give a point of something to do or something to believe, they actually say, you see where I see this in the passage? Look at the text. I'll show it to you right from the Bible so that you never get the impression that we're coming up with this stuff out of our own ingenuity or creativity, our own philosophies. It is just the plain, simple statements of Scripture. Therefore, it carries authority in our lives, right? Because it comes from God. So young people in the room, when one day if you are out looking for a church of your own, I say this often, and I believe it to be true, the way that, that the Bible is handled in the service is your number one concern above everything else about that church. What do they do with the Bible? How do they use the Bible? How is the preacher treating the Bible? That's your number one concern. Not anything else about it. Now, other things are important. I'm not saying that. Other things can play a role, and they are important. But the way that church views the Bible will be displayed in their morning services. What they think about the effectiveness of it or power of it or authority of it will come through in the way it's read, in the way it's spoken about, in the way it's taught. And if it isn't mentioned much, well, they don't think much of it, do they? They think more power is to be found in their creative venues of expression and uh, entertainment and whatever else displays in their productions or their shows. They don't find much power in the Word of God, but that is the source of power for us, authority of salvation. Okay, so that brings us in then to chapter 4, because what he's doing here is he's going to use Abraham as an example of everything he's teaching. Let's look at verse 1. I'm just going to read the passage. As always, then I'll pause and pray, and then we'll jump in. This morning, we're going to read uh, through verse 8. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, His faith 
is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Let's just pause and pray. Father, we are so in need of you every moment of our lives, and that includes in worship. We need your spirit to enable us to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we need your spirit to illuminate this passage to our minds and hearts and show us what it means and how it applies. So we pray for that now. We ask for the spirit to lead us into truth and to encourage us in the Lord Jesus Christ and that we would love you through your word, Father. I pray that you would gift me now by your spirit to do what I can only do by your gifting and that is to teach and exhort and to do so in love and truth. And so I ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. Now in chapter 4, there are three key words and this will not surprise us at all because at least two of them we have gone over and over and will continue to go over and over in this chapter. But there are really three key words or word groups that help us see the main theme of the entire chapter. It is a good idea whenever you study the Bible, you're going to study a passage to read it through a number of times and really just go through and see, is anything repeated here that I should be looking for that maybe the author is intending me to catch? And lo and behold, we do that in this passage and there are three key words. The first one, of course, and again, this will be no surprise to us because it's a key word throughout the whole book, is the word righteousness. Or it's verbal form, justified. Keep in mind, those are the two same word group. Righteousness is a noun, of course, something you have. Uh, and justified is something that is done. And in this case, it is God who justifies. And remember, that means to declare righteous, which is what we need. You want to be saved? You must be declared righteous. So this answers how that's going to happen. This word group is used nine times. Verses 2, 3, twice in verse 5, verse 6, 9, 11, 13, and 22. I read those for you only because so you can see that it's repeated and it's through the whole chapter. So it is a key idea within this chapter. The next word, and this will be no surprise to us, those of you who have been going along in the book of Romans up to this point with us, is that word faith. Or again, the verbal form, believe. Same underlying word, just depending if it's a, a noun, faith, or a verb, believe. Uh, faith is something you have, and believe is something you do, but it's the same idea. And this word group is used 15 times through this one chapter. 15 times. Verses 3, twice in verse 5, 9, 11, 12, 13, 14, twice in verse 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, and 25. 
okay? In one chapter, throughout the whole thing. So here we have these two words, and they go hand in hand, by the way. Faith and righteousness are connected. That's the idea. Or faith and justification. Do you want to be right with God? Do you want to be declared righteous by God? Then the idea is believe in him and you will be declared righteous. Faith in this chapter leads to the righteousness you need to stand in a right relationship with God apart from anything you do. That's the glory of the gospel. That you can know right now this morning, I'm right with God and I forever will be because I have the righteousness I need not based on anything that I've done but based entirely on what God has done through Christ for me. So my faith is in Jesus and what we'll learn in this chapter is that when that happens and you believe in Jesus, God then declares you righteous and the glorious truth of Romans is that righteousness, that declaration of righteousness, is something that carries throughout your whole life and into the day of judgment, you see. It's a once for all declaration of God. Of course, that comes through faith, and we'll talk about this in detail. But there is another word that I would like to introduce to us that is also connected both with faith and righteousness. It, comes in the middle, and it's something that God does. And it is this word, we first see it in verse 3, the word counted. Do you see it there? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is something God does when people believe him generally, or something God does when people believe in his son. He counts that faith as righteousness. This, in ancient days, when Paul was writing, could be a, uh, an accounting or mathematical term that uh, could mean simply something like this, to place into one's account something, to reckon somebody something or place something into their account. And this word counted is used 11 times throughout the whole chapter. Verses 3, 4, 5, 6, 8, 9, 10, 11, 22, 23, and 24. And the key idea as it is attached to both faith and righteousness or believing in justification is this, when you believe in Jesus, God credits that faith as righteousness and declares you righteous. So you have all the righteousness you need when you believe in Jesus. You're declared righteous, God credits it to your account. It's a wonderful thing, wonderful truth. And that's apart from any works you do. This is key in understanding chapter 4. When it comes to you being justified before God, your right standing before God, what you do or don't do is irrelevant. It doesn't come into the equation. Your works or your good deeds or your church membership or your baptism or your giving to the poor or your serving others in need, none of those things at all to any extent, not one little minute way 
a tribute to your right standing before God. It is completely and totally and utterly apart from works. You believe in Jesus, God credits that faith as righteousness now, and you have all the righteousness you need. I've likened it in the past to a, to a bank account that is always completely full. That you, by your good deeds, are not adding to your righteousness account. Because, as we just sang earlier, Christ is your righteousness. So you don't need any more. And furthermore, and we'll look at this more next week, when you sin, and we all sin, none of that righteousness account is depleted. It's not withdrawn on. Do you see what I mean? You don't lose any righteousness when you sin, and therefore i got to gain this back to make sure that account's full so that I can be justified before God. That's not the way it works. Christ is your complete and full righteousness apart from any works. You are saved by works, friends. They're just not yours. They are the works of the Lord Jesus Christ and His alone. Okay, now let's examine these first handful of verses here in detail for a few minutes. Look at what Paul does in chapter 4, verse 1, which we've already seen him do things like this before, right? He's going to teach and he's going to ask a question to get them thinking. Just in case there's someone that doesn't believe what he's saying. He wants them to really think about this. And listen to the question. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. What did he find or what was gained by Abraham? It is interesting to note that Paul assumes that the church at Rome, all of them, many of them non-Jewish believers, would be familiar with Abraham, isn't it? It's as though we are learning from the scripture that just because we're New Testament Christians does not mean that we get rid of the Old Testament of our Bibles. That really all of the salvation that we're experiencing is rooted in the Old Testament and more fully revealed, yes, in the New Testament in Christ. But the Old Testament of your Bible is so important. And even for you, Christian, to be familiar with the accounts that he's talking about. I mean, he's going to quote in verse 3 from Genesis. But do you know what chapter? It's chapter 15. We should be aware of those things. We should be able to recall in our minds that, oh yeah, the story of Abraham begins in Genesis 12 then runs through uh, the many chapters in uh, Genesis and how important it is to know these particular things. But he's going to use Abraham here as an example. And he asks the question, what did Abraham find I mean, our forefather according to the flesh. Now, that phrase, our forefather according to the flesh. It is possible, on the one hand, that Paul here is talking to fellow Jews within the congregation at Rome. And they viewed rightly that according to the flesh, that as, as dis, they were the physical descendants of Abraham. That's what a true Jewish person is. They are physical descendants of Abraham, right? Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, God renamed Jacob Israel, and then all of the descendants there are Israelites, and they all come from Abraham. So they'd say, Abraham's our forefather, 
And the reason Paul says according to the flesh is because he's going to make a big deal in this chapter about even Gentiles are now spiritual descendants of Abraham by faith, that he is all of our forefather uh, uh, by faith. So he could be referring to that and just primarily addressing Jews who may have a real problem with this faith alone aspect apart from works of the law and they don't quite know what to do then with the law and so they're working through this. But there is an alternate translation and it's interesting to read through commentaries and and, uh, uh, various uh, tools that I use and see the different theologians kind of battling this. What he could be saying is something like this. What then shall we say Abraham, our forefather, found according to the flesh? Or what he gained according to the flesh? In other words, the key idea is what he's about to do is ask, was Abraham justified according to the flesh in anything he did? Uh, Was he justified at all by works? You see what I'm saying? There's a difference there. Could be either way. We don't need to die on either hill. But the key argument that Paul is making is that Abraham was not justified by works. And therefore, we need to follow in the footsteps of the faith of our forefather Abraham and just believe God to be justified and to be right with God. But was Abraham justified by works or by faith alone? That's the key question that he's asking. And then in verse 2, what Paul does is say, just throws out a hypothetical. Let's say, for the sake of argument, he says, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. That's a really important statement because it's true. If Abraham found his right standing with God based on things he did, his works, then Abraham has something to boast about, doesn't he? I'm right with God, Abraham could say, because I did this or that or the other thing, or a combination of all of them. And therefore, I have reason to boast in that. That's how I gained my Right standing before God. You know, that's why often in religions that require you to do something to be saved, you find so much pride in them. Because in their mind, as they're working for their salvation and they're doing the good works and the good deeds and they're accumulating their righteousness, they're so proud of it. Well, if that's how they're gaining a right standing for God, they should be. You have reason to boast, you see. If, if your salvation is at all by good works. You know, friends, we become proud people when we forget the pure gospel that we are all sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. When we forget that, when we lose focus on the gospel of grace to us as sinners, we start to become proud. 
we may start looking around at other people and thinking, why aren't they doing as much as I'm doing? Why can't that person just get their act together? I don't get it. We become proud when we forget that our entire standing before God is all grace, unmerited to sinful people. I knew a man once who loved telling people how many times he read through the Bible. And every year that I knew him, that number would go up once because he read it again in another year. And it wasn't just matter-of-factly like, oh yeah, you know, I read the Bible every year and you know, I think I've read it, oh, you know, so many 15, 16 times now. No, it was, I'm proud of this. And I want everybody to know how many times I read through the Bible, I've read through the Bible and how much knowledge I have about the Bible. There was pride in it. It was detectable. We must remember, as Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Therefore, friends, you have nothing to boast about, right? Or as clearly as Paul says it, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, for who sees anything different in you? For what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? That's a good question. What do you have to be proud of if your entire salvation from cover to cover comes from God alone and His grace alone and His Spirit working in you? I like the saying, I've quoted it many times, I always give credit to it for uh, Dr. Bob Provost, who was the president of Slava Gospel Association when I was working for them. And somebody would tell him he did a good job on something and he'd say, well... God gets the credit for anything good that comes from me and I'll take credit for everything else. It's all attributed to God. So Paul, back in chapter four now, he's saying if, if Abraham contributed to his right standing with God at all, if works came into the picture at all, then he would have something to boast about. And not only that, but God's justifying of Abraham would not be a gracious act at all. It would be what God owed him. That's the point he makes. Look at this in verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Most of us in this room have had employers and had jobs. And when you get a job, there's a certain agreement that you make with this employer that you're going to supply a certain amount of work or a certain amount of hours and they're going to compensate you for that time. And when they go to cut that check, they're not being gracious to you. They may make you think that way. <laughs> Boy, am I a gracious employer. Look at me give you what I owe you for the work you gave to me. Don't ever let them get away with that. You owe me that paycheck. As a matter of fact, if an employer tries to back out of that arrangement and not pay you, you have recourse through the court systems and have grounds for a civil case that you could bring against them. You owe me this money. You must pay it. And Paul is saying to the one who works for righteousness and does works at all, why then God owes that person justification. It isn't something that would be by grace. But do you remember what Paul said back in chapter 3? And do you remember this in verse 23 and 24? 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Now, a gift is not something he owes to you, is it? It's freely given because you're a sinner and didn't deserve the justification. You don't have the righteousness you need. So, if, if Abraham were justified by works, he'd have something to boast about, and then God would owe him eternal life because, after all, he's a righteous person. But then Paul says very clearly there in verse 2, but not before God. In other words, what he is is canceling out that possibility at all. That Abraham, being justified by God, has nothing to boast about. And what they'll learn is that even Abraham, even Abraham, that prominent figure in the Bible, even he was justified by grace alone, you see. It's important to know, I suppose, historically, that to the Jewish people, Abraham was a hero. There's no denying that he was one of the most prominent figures in all of the Bible, of course, and as we mentioned earlier, their forefather, according to the flesh and the one really through whom they were going to be blessed by God. But they took that a little too far. And it's interesting to read some of the writings that I came across in my readings about Abraham from Jewish sources. And they would say things like this, that Abraham, quote, did not sin against thee, that is God. Or this one, No one has been found like him in glory, referring to Abraham. Or this one. Abraham was perfect in all of his actions with the Lord and pleasing through his righteousness all the days of his life. Now, those Jewish writers that are writing these things about Abraham, what did, how did they think Abraham stood before God in a right position? Was it by grace alone, through faith alone? No, they thought that Abraham stood before God in a right position because Abraham was perfect in all his actions and was pleasing to the Lord because of his, that is, Abraham's righteousness and God sees it and is oh so happy about it and declares him righteous. You can see then how that kind of thinking about how a person is right with God created so much confusion among the Jews of Jesus' day and Paul's day and how a gospel of free grace comes along and is being proclaimed. Free grace through faith alone in Christ apart from the works of the law caused such a problem in their way of thinking. They weren't thinking this way at all about justification. Well, of course, Paul knows this because that's the way Paul used to think before he came to his understanding of the grace of God in Jesus Christ through The gospel. 
By the way, let me just make this side statement. We all have a tendency to overrate human people we admire. That could be with biblical characters who become our heroes or pastors or well-known Bible teachers and writers. I sometimes read the, well, certain biographies of Christians from the past and it can be motivating, I guess, at times, but sometimes just downright discouraging when I read about the absolute perfection of some of these people, that certainly they were perfect if you get, it, if you get the right impression from the author. Of course, they were not perfect. All of us are just fallen men and women, failing every day, falling short of the glory of God. No more better one than the other. We don't want to make a hero out of anybody in the Bible because frankly, what you find if you read your Bible is that there's only one hero of the whole story and that is God. And there is only one human hero in all of the story and that is God in the flesh and his name is Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus is the only one to whom we can say, not Abraham, Jesus, that he did not sin against thee, God. We're thankful for that. He is the only one that we could say, no one has been found like him in glory. Of course, Jesus is the only one that we could say, he, that is Jesus, was perfect in all his actions with the Lord and pleasing through his righteousness all the days of his life. You see, friends, what it is is the Bible is showing us how all our sinners in need of grace And all are only going to be saved one way, and that is through Jesus Christ and Him alone. This is why John writes in 1 John 2, verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. In other words, what he's saying is, Christians are not to live sinful lives. That when you come to faith in Christ, your life is to change and you are to live righteously and you are to do what is right. Don't get the wrong impression about grace as though it's some kind of permission slip now for you to just go do whatever you want. The Bible, right? Scripture alone directs how we live, what we do and what we we don't do. All of those things. We are supposed to live godly, upright lives in this present age. That's true, says John. But John knows that no one is going to do that perfectly. And so he says this, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. Listen, the righteous one. The only one who is righteous for us so that when we do sin, he steps forward as the advocate. I am that sinner's righteousness. My life and the righteousness of it is sufficient for that sinner. My cross work is sufficient for him and covers him from this sin. I am his righteousness or her righteousness. Jesus is the one that we look to as a righteousness. 
So Paul is making it clear here that Abraham would not have anything to boast about because of verse 3. You see it? Four, he can't boast before God because then he's going to quote from Scripture. Look at verse 3. He says, for what does the Scripture say? And here he quotes from Genesis 15. Next week we're going to actually turn there and look at that passage. But I just want to look at the quotation here that Paul gives. This is what the Scripture says about Abraham. This is why he has nothing to boast about. This is why we all must be justified by faith alone. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God in his promise. You remember the, really the promise was that he would have a descendant. And that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But Abraham is about 100 years old at this point. And Sarah is barren and has been and she is I think 90 years old at this point well beyond natural childbearing years to say the least but it was that night that Abram or God appeared to Abram in a vision and said fear not Abram I am your shield and your reward shall be great Now come outside and look up to the stars. Now Abram, you count those stars if you're able to. So shall your descendants be. And in that moment, purely by the grace of God, I'm sure, Abraham looked at those stars and he believed God's promise. And what did God do? He counted it to him as righteousness. He justified him. Abraham didn't do anything. No good works. No obedience to a command. Just look and believe. And why is that story written? And why is Paul quoting it here? So that we know how God will respond when we look in faith to his son. The promise fulfilled from Abraham. Look, says God, to my son, Jesus, and believe in him, and I'll respond to you the same way that I responded to Abraham all those many years ago. I will count your faith as righteousness, And you will stand in this justified right position with me forever. God just wanted Abraham to trust him. That was the only expectation. Trust in me. And it's written so that we can know this is how God will respond to us. One of the greatest accounts of this, and I'll close with this, was with the, uh, when, when Jesus was being crucified and you had the, the uh, robbers, the thieves on each side being crucified on either side of him. And these must have been some really bad characters to end up on a Roman crucifixion. Probably murdering thieves, more than just thieves, murdering thieves and, and warranted uh, death by execution in the most horrific way. And here they are both pinned to a cross with Jesus. And you remember how the story goes. They 
both began railing on Jesus and said, get us down from here. If you're the son of God, if you're the king of Israel, get us off of this cross. And one of them, midway through or so, has a change of heart. And he looked at Jesus and he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, what's interesting about that is that that man didn't have an opportunity to do anything for the Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't even going to be able to pray, get baptized, read a Bible, serve at VBS, share the gospel with anybody, take communion, sing sing in the songs, nothing. He wasn't, he was going to have no opportunity to do anything. He was dying. Once you were on the cross, there's no getting off. But what did he do? He looked to Jesus and he believed in him, you see. And it was in that moment, just through faith alone in Jesus alone, apart from any works What was promised to him was an eternity with Christ in paradise. The whole point of that is that this is the way all must be right with God. Through faith alone in Jesus alone. Are you looking to Christ alone now for your salvation? You slipped into patterns of thinking somehow your right standing with God was somehow connected to what you do or how you behaved this week or how you're going to behave in the future. Friends, it's none of those things. It's through faith alone in Christ alone. And if you believe in him this morning, he will justify you just like he did Abraham. He will justify you just like he did the thief on the cross. And you are promised now. And God can never pull back his promises. You are promised salvation through Christ. So look to Jesus alone, the only thing that has changed between Abraham and now. Abraham's faith in God and ours now. The only difference is our faith has a more solidified object, doesn't it? We know now that our faith uniquely rests in the promised seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. So look to him and be justified. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. As sinners, we, we could never attain the right standing with you that we need to have eternal life. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his righteousness. We thank you that when we read the gospels, we see him doing right for us. We praise him now. We thank you for him. In his name we pray this. Amen.